Well, good morning. It is a privilege for me to be here today. I send you greetings from the New England Training and Sending Center for Church Planning and Revitalization and from Christ Memorial Church in Vermont. Um, We are big fans of your pastor. I spent a good year with the Demi and loved the time we had together uh, as he went through our internship program just to get a little finishing touches on a man who's already well prepared. So thank you for the honor and the privilege of being here to open God's Word with you today. Let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. We're going to begin reading with verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth and no plant of the field had yet sprouted For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the ground, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good, and the bdellium and the onyx stone are there. And The name of the second river is Gibbon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of the ribs, one of his ribs, and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Let us pray. Oh, our Father, this morning, we need your grace. We need the work of your Holy Spirit in our midst. We need you to bless us. We've come to worship you, but at the end of the day, we need you to touch us. I pray that your spirit would be at work in this room today, having your way with us, that you will use the holy word of God to its intended saving effect in our lives, calling the lost to faith and moving the saints along in that faith, growing in grace together. 
So please change us today on the basis of your word. And I ask for that blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a boy, I used to eat Thanksgiving dinner every year at my grandmother's house. It was a house full of anywhere from 12 to 25 people. They were all seated at one long, long table. And the feast was simply beyond description. <laughs> Not just the quality of it, which was very high, but the quantity of it, which as I look back, seems almost grotesque to me now, but it was a fabulous spread of a Thanksgiving table. There was a vast array of food, very many kinds, and ample supply. And I'm not making this up. My wife, my lovely wife, has not ever seen the table I'm talking about because by the time we got married, my uh, 1989, my, my grandmother, 1988, we got married, my grandmother was in her 80s, and she had ratcheted this thing down to nearly human proportions by that time. But even, even, back, <laughs> even back in those days, uh, Betsy was stunned by what she saw the first time she saw that meal. It's only a shadow of its former self. So there was turkey, of course. Of course there was turkey. Um, it was slow roasted overnight. Uh, there was cornbread stuffing, two kinds, really. One baked in the turkey and one baked in a dish. And then there was gravy, and there was ham. There was also country ham, uh, fried up in a cast iron skillet. There was fried chicken, fried in lard. There was, I grew up in the South. <laughs> there was roast beef. I'm talking about the same meal. All at one time, it was a buffet. There were green beans. There were, there were shucky beans. That's a special kind of Eastern Kentucky dried bean you might never have heard of. I don't know. Uh, there were soup beans, there were butter beans, there were lima beans, there was corn. There, there was also cream corn, and, and there were carrots, and there were peas, and there were mashed potatoes covered in butter, and there, there were baked sweet potatoes, the white kind my grandmother grew, and, and, and a red sweet potato casserole with brown sugar on it. There were dried apples that had been cooked in butter. There was coleslaw. Uh, there was cornbread. Uh, indisputably, in my opinion, the best cornbread in the Western world uh, made by my grandmother. There were homemade yeast rolls. All that food my grandmother put on the table. And then the other families brought food. So my, my cousin Brenda, who evidently thought there was not enough rich food on the table, would usually make this really rich oyster casserole. It's pretty much consisted of not much more than Dozens of oysters, pounds of crackers, and sticks of butter, and mix all that up. It was good. Uh, my mother made her famous broccoli and cheese casserole. I don't even remember what my Aunt Doris brought. And we haven't even talked about dessert yet. So there was, there was pecan pie, there was blackberry cobbler, there was lemon meringue pie, there was chocolate pie, angel food cake. There might be a cherry pie. There were usually these handmade mincemeat pies that Grandma made. There were her special dried apple pies. There was ice cream. There was sometimes homemade ice cream. There was sherbet if you didn't like ice cream. There were, there were homemade chocolate bourbon balls, which I don't mean to suggest they were strong, but when you ate them, they acted like big chocolate sleeping pills. So there was, there was iced tea. There was milk. There was buttermilk. There was coffee. There were Coca-Colas and grape colas and orange. My grandmother had a soft drink machine on her porch. So th there was for my finicky uncle, a pitcher of ice water. Why not? And, and in more than one flavor, there was, there was jello. Because there's, as we all remember, there's always room for jello. 
So when you come up to a table like that, you just almost don't know what to do with it. You just kind of want to reach out and touch it all and just to believe that it's really there. And, you know, you need a strategy if you plan to navigate a table like that. A man has got to know his limitations. You can go deep or you can go wide, but you can't do both in the time allotted. So, so I'm telling you that story for two reasons, really. One is that I believe this early part of Genesis is from a redemptive historical point of view, is from a biblical theological point of view, a Thanksgiving Day visit to my grandmother's house, and I almost don't know where to start with what's going on. And the other reason is that I believe our text is a picture of a great and generous God who with a smile on his face lavishly lays out a feast of immeasurable scope for his beloved child, both for God's own enjoyment and glory and for his child's happiness and enrichment. So there's, there's more going on here than there ever was at my grandmother's table. This is a salvation feast. It's a table of wonders and delights for hungry souls. And we can't eat it all in one sitting, but I'm, I would be so sad today if any soul among us went away from this table hungry. So I'm praying that the Lord will enable us to see it with eyes of faith with the result that we take and eat and partake of it by faith and be blessed. I'm wondering if you'll come to this table with me. I'd like to, I'd like to go there together. Now, there is a danger of me scooping up a passage like this and preaching it in isolation from the rest of the book of Genesis. I don't have time to try to lay out the structure of Genesis, but let me say this. The place we've started here is the second big division in the book of Genesis, and we only read half of that second big section. We're not going to do we're not going to do the second half. What we've got here is progress, progressing from the account of God creating the heavens of the earth and the earth from let there be light all the way to male and female he created them and concluding that it was all very good. That all happened in chapter 1 and a little bit of chapter 2. I've entitled our message A Vision of the Very Good. So our text tells the same creation story in great detail with the focus on the man and his relationship to God as his creator and provider. And the capstone of God's provision is going to be the creation of the woman for him. So we're not going to look at the second half that goes all the way through chapter 4, uh, where things get pretty bad as Adam takes the plunge into sin and deception and God curses the earth and expels mankind from the garden and from his presence. But I'm bringing that bad news up because I'm persuaded. Even before that bad news happens, God is already revealing how he plans to remedy all that with the good news. It's right here. So the very good of the garden, I'm persuaded, is designed to help us see the very good of the gospel. And I hope we'll see that this morning. Before the sickness comes, we're getting a glimpse of the cure already. So the theme of the message is this. The very good condition of man and woman in the garden would be lost in the fall, but restored in the gospel by the very good Redeemer to whom it all points. Let's look at the text. Let's look at the very good of the garden. First thing we see there, verses 4 to 7, is the calling of the man. And we see how prominent he is. Two things are supposed to be plain to us from that creation account. It's supposed to be plain from us to us from the outset that the man is, first of all, he's part of creation. He's of the same stuff as the rest 
of the world. He's not God, in other words. He's a creature. He's entirely dependent upon the Creator for literally everything. And that's part of the significance of the man being made up from the dust of the earth, you see. God raises up a man from the earth, from the dust. And there's kind of a play on words in the Hebrew. I'm not into a lot of that stuff, but it, uh, it says the man, Adam, is made of stuff from the earth, the Adamah, Adamah. Or if I was going to translate it, I might say, God, the Lord God made the earthling out of the dust of the earth. That's kind of what's going on there. But even more apparent is the degree to which the Lord elevates this creature to such prominence. He's part of the creation, but he is clearly the pinnacle of it. In making the human, God did indeed save the best for last. Man alone is formed by God uh, by divine, after divine deliberation. God didn't say, let the earth bring forth people. Uh, man alone is the image of God. And what specifics this entails aren't crucial here, but the fact is crucial. Man is like God in a reflective way. He's made that way. And this created man is morally upright, but he's subject to change. He's not yet perfected in his uprightness. Things can go bad. Man alone is the one who is recipient of the breath of life breathed out by God directly. Man is the ruler and developer of the plant kingdom and the animal kingdom. Uh, that's the significance of the fact that creation awaited a cultivator to come along and develop a wide array of agricultural plants. I believe this is one aspect of the image of God in man. He's a ruler and a creator of sorts. Man is the ruler of the animal kingdom. That's the significance of the fact that he gave names to them all. That's seen as an act of ownership. You name something, it belongs to you. You name your kids, they're your kids. <clears throat> and this man is the head of all the people who will come after him. We have here a person who stands for all the people to come after him. They will share in everything that he has and everything that he is. And their welfare is going to hinge on his welfare. So that's, there's, the, there's the creation of the man. But now let's look at the care God has given to this man. Look what the Lord gave to him for his care, for his blessing. The Lord had rested from all his works on the seventh day. And it's apparent that his intention was for the man to share in that rest. Not that he would have no work to do, but that he should share in the wholeness and the completion of God's work, the blessedness of rest. So look at what God surrounded him with. Just look back at the passage, talking about grandma's table. Verse 9, every tree that is pleasing to the sight, good for food. That means every good kind of food imaginable. It was all there. And, and when the agriculture part got going, he was going to find even more and more culinary delights provided by God's good hand. But it wasn't all about food in the literal sense. The feast was a feast of really all the resources of a bountiful creation given as a gift to the man. Th these great rivers were providing fresh water, and they would rise and water to the ground when he was ready to farm. And, and gold, precious stones, I think you could take those comments as a, a summary form of all the natural resources contained in the earth, as we still keep discovering them, don't we? And, and beyond the physical, there's life itself. The tree of life, which you should understand, stands for the life of God sh freely shared with the man. There's nothing mystical about the tree itself. God is the life in the garden. The tree is a symbol. And then there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's for man's good too. It stands as a test of obedience. I think it represents the opportunity for him to choose 
between asserting for himself his own judgment about what's good and what's evil, and thus coming to experience, to know good and evil. He hadn't known evil yet. And he could choose between that or accept God's revelation as a sure guide to what's good and what's evil. So the Lord said to leave this tree alone is good and to eat from this tree is bad. So can you, can you see that even that tree is a provision for the man? It's a protection for him. So God has provided everything from physical comforts to the knowledge of how to do good and avoid evil. How wide is the table that the Lord has spread? What a, what a host what, what kind of generosity is that? And I believe there's more implied in the text. It's an implication of the tree of life, and it's borne out in God's concern for the man not to be alone. God has provided for the man relationally in the gift of himself. God is with him in the garden. God comes there. He comes to be with the man. This, you know, compared to my, my grandmother I was telling you about, I remember Christmas at my other grandmother's house on occasion, and it was very different. I don't even remember what we ate, but at, at my mama Pearl's house, she was the one we were interested in. She, we were there to see her. We loved her. Um, so it, it's the same with God and man in the garden. There's a relationship going on. And then we see what I've called the completion of the man in verses 18 to 25. Because the one thing in all creation that was seen as not good until God made it very good, was the loneliness of the man. It's not good for a man to be alone, the Lord said. So God helped the man. First, he led him through this worldwide search among all the available creatures to see if a suitable counterpart could be found. Now, that doesn't indicate any silliness on God's part, any lack of ability on God's part to know what the end of that search was going to render, but it indicates that God's great desire to, to make the man see the glory, the uniqueness, the perfect suitability, and the resultant sense of completion that would attend what he was about to do. God brought into existence really a new creation taken out of the man. The woman is his counterpart. She's perfectly fitted to be a complement. She makes him whole. She makes him fully human. The text is plain. Male and female together comprise mankind. She's his equal. She's not identical to him. She has her own distinctive role in the divine economy. She's made to be a helper. And finally, at the sight of this greatest gift, we hear the man say something. He exercises what I think is another aspect of being an image bearer. He, he's a speaker. He opens his lips. So what does he say? We didn't hear him say the names of the animals. We don't know what he said then. Why did he call that a giraffe? I don't know. Um, but the covenantal oath. Listen again to the text. Um, he says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. You should read that as something of a formula, not just an acknowledgement that she came out of my rib and out of my side, but I could show you other places in the scripture where that language, you are my bone and my flesh, is a covenantal oath, swearing allegiance to another person. So they are here joined in covenantal union, in a covenant relationship with one another. Now, he could be even more like God. So, the Bible says they were naked and unashamed. This means they had no shame because they had no guilt. There was nothing to be ashamed of. Their nakedness is a symbol of their experiential innocence. They were clothed with dignity from God, and it was all the clothing that they needed. 
They didn't need anything else. Could God have been any more generous, I ask you? Has he left anything out? Is, is there any food under the sun, not on this table, spread before the man and the woman? It's all there. It's all for them. Everything in creation and a right relationship with the creator to boot, right down to sharing, reflecting his image. Now that right there is where the story is poised. The second half of the passage continue it as things start to go downtown. We're not going to go forward and unpack that text, but you have to see how all of this is a deliberate backdrop to all that God is about to do in redemption. The categories are established for God to fill them up in the gospel, I'm suggesting. It doesn't take much sophisticated reflection to see the redemptive implications of these things that we've looked at. The very good of the garden really is a setup for the very good of the gospel. The, the first aspect of that is just the, we can realize already the grief of sin, even though sin hasn't happened yet. We can realize it because we understand that sin will mean we have all this to lose. Isn't that the most obvious part of all? Even before we get to chapter 3, if you read this account with any understanding, can't you see what a crime and what a tragedy, what an utter disaster it would be to lose all of this? But that's where our sin takes us. That's exactly where sin takes us. You know, I want to get personal and speak to you. Since I don't know you, I want to know. I'm, I'm suspicious there could be someone in the room today that is outside of Christ. It don't, doesn't have saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe all this is just a novelty to you or you're just a spectator to these things. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, sadly, that means you've come to this table you spit on it, kind of slapped the host, and stormed out of the house in, in a tantrum. You forfeited all this, wanting something else. And frankly, you've been thrown out of the house. It's all lost to you. You're not the regal ruler of things. Sin makes you a dirty beggar among the rabble. You're no longer the beautiful image of a holy God. But instead, the image is twisted and sickening. It's, it's, like a, it's like a Rembrandt painting that's been touched up by a mean-spirited five-year-old with a Sharpie. Your prominence is lost because of your sin. Paradise is lost because of your sin. The rest that God has planned for the creature has not come to you outside of Christ. You're weary and you're worn and you can't find rest for your soul in all your endeavors. Because Adam's disobedience you've owned. Opting to make yourself the judge of good and bad instead of listening to God. And that means you live in a spiritual famine like the rest of the world roaming around from this thrill to that thrill, from one idea to the next idea, trying to make something make sense of your life it makes sense out of you, and nothing ever does. Nothing ever will. You're dry and you're parched. There's no water of life about you. All this paradise, all this provision, all this good is lost, lost to all who've been born in Adam's sin. So we are lost, too, unless we come to find the gracious good of the gospel. But I want to tell you the good news that's right in our passage in a foreshadowed way, but a powerful way. The grace of the gospel, all this to gain in redemption, 
God has acted to bring it all back. God has moved to bring about restoration. God has taken decisive steps to bring to his people all the wonders, all the glories, all the delights, and all the good which he had originally proposed. And Genesis is the beginning of the gospel's good. God is unfolding a salvation which brings us back to the table, back to prominence in his creation as servants of the Most High God, back to a restored image of God in the flesh, back to a spiritual feast and rivers of water and rivers of life, back, back to his revelation which shows us good and hides us from evil, back to relationships made whole, covenant faithfulness lived out in unity and love, back to a place where our nakedness is covered, our guilt is gone, and we don't have to be ashamed. All this God is already here preparing to do. All this God is beginning to show us, and all this he has finally gone and done for us in the person and work of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, of whom all this blessedness and all this redemption is a paradigm and a preview. Can you, can you see the Lord Jesus on display here? He's the substance of these blessings and the means of their restoration. Jesus is really the prominent one, isn't he? He's the man whom God fashioned, both with the breath of life and made of the earth. He's God incarnate. Jesus is the man that God raised up from the dust of the earth when he raised him from the grave. Jesus is the true man who came and showed us he was the ruler of all creation. What would he do when he came? He was able to tame the wild beasts and calm the wild seas and cause the fig tree to wither at his word. Jesus is the obedient head of his people who suffered in this life as he learned obedience, who passed the test of obedience in the wilderness, Refusing to listen to the lie of the devil. Oh, you children of God sitting out there this morning. Here's your feast. It's a feast of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm wondering if you could see him. Are you feeding on him? Jesus Christ restores to us the image of God made aright. He is, as the book of Hebrews tells us, the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. So Jesus came to bring, to bring estranged sinners back back to God's presence, into God's rest. He stood and cried out to sinners like you and me who had wearied themselves in religion and rule-keeping and vain attempts at self-justification. And he said to them with compassion, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am humble, gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. Of course, we know Jesus did more than offer himself as a gentle and humble teacher, don't we? Jesus Christ offered himself as a sacrifice for sin. He obeyed his Father to the point of death on a cross. Jesus suffered and bled and died in the place of sinners. He was bearing God's wrath and bearing the just punishment for sin. Now the exiled sinners could be brought back because Jesus suffered the exile from God's presence on the cross. And the Father turned his back on him. He bore our sins, he paid our debt, then he rose victorious. So the price of entering Christ's rest was the price of blood, which he freely paid. And there's, there's something more hidden in our passage. 
not hidden too, too hard. Look again at the text. Look at verse 23 and 24. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. It turns out that the very good of giving the man a wife to complete him is actually a forward-looking picture of how the Lord plans to save his people from their sins. It is a forward picture of what God will one day do in order to bring his creation to completion, his new creation. And the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians, in a familiar marriage text, read it all the time at weddings, that what we just read, the two shall become one flesh. He says it's a mystery. It really speaks, Paul says, with reference to Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. It turns out that this human marriage was never really an end in itself. Marriage is a temporary arrangement. Most of us in our wedding vows acknowledge that. We say, till death do us part. And then that's over. But in the new creation, there's a different kind of marriage to be enjoyed. In the new creation, beautiful, the beautiful and shiny church of Jesus Christ will be wed to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The marriage of Adam and Eve united in their covenantal bond is a promise that God would, in Christ, give himself to his people. That union brings believers back to the life in the garden, which was always God himself. We get back to the life of the garden when we get to Jesus Christ and are united to him by faith, and we become his bride. And that, that union, the people of God in it, will find their completion and experience the rest for their souls. We shall reign with Christ, the Bible tells us, as co-regents over the new creation where there's no sin, there's no evil, no wicked thing. It will be a feast starting with the banquet supper of the Lamb and continuing for eternity. We are betrothed dear believer. We're betrothed to Jesus Christ, and there's a big party coming. Again, I say, if you're outside of Christ today, let me just ask you a question in a different way. How could you not want this? Is what you have actually better than this? No, it is not. So I plead with you to open your eyes and to see Christ See that he's better than anything you ever had. I call upon you again to come to Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Turn from your sins, all your wicked ways, all your inferior loves, and just come running to Jesus by faith alone. He offers himself to you. And I'm asking you, will you have him? Or will you walk away from the table? Come to Christ. Come to Christ. And if you're here this morning, a brother, a sister, and you say you want this. I know you do. You say you have this. I'm, I'm sure you do, but I'm, I still would like to ask you to be willing to take a hard look at yourself. If Jesus Christ is really the prominent one, is he prominent in your life? I'll ask it a different way. Could anybody else get the idea that Jesus Christ is the most prominent and important person in your life? What would that look like? Well, I bet, I bet it would look a lot 
like talking about him a lot more than you do. You know, engaged people spend a lot of time with each other. And they talk about each other when they're not together. Is that how it is with you and Christ? Do you spend a lot of time together? And do you talk about him to others? It's a fair question. And note this, when I say spending time with him, spending time with the church of Jesus Christ is spending time with Christ because when you've done it to them, you've done it to him. He taught us. Or again, if Jesus Christ is the provision of God for you, why would you look for any other provision in this life? Why would you seek for other comfort or look for other delights or pursue other treasures? I'm just asking you, are you hoarding up inferior wealth? Are you selfishly holding on to the thing that he calls you to sacrifice for his name's sake? Why not let him be to you the all-sufficient provision that God Almighty says he is? We sang about that, didn't we? If Jesus Christ is your betrothed bridegroom, why would you be dating anybody else? Why not be busy making yourself beautiful for him? You know, the revelation puts it just that way because it speaks of the bride of Christ coming and coming to the lamb, headed for the marriage supper, and it says of the bride, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. That's, that's how the bride of Christ makes herself beautiful for him. She practices righteousness. So why, why are you wasting your time, wasting your effort on the scraps and the trash of the world in view of this bounty? Why would you be seeking to be filled with all that nonsense and all that drivel that's out there in view of the glory of Christ? Oh, it's a crime to come to my grandmother's table and turn up your nose. What a waste it is to come to her house with a mouthful of candy and cookies. And what an insult it is to order out. And what a shame, too. But God the Father has shown us a vision of the very good in Jesus Christ. It's very good. It's very good to be united to Christ by faith alone. It is not good for us to be alone, but to be united with Christ. It is very good to be with God in the garden. It is very good to sit at his banquet table and feast with him. He gives us bread from heaven, the very food of our souls. It is very good to taste and see that the Lord is good. He is very good. So, dear saints, our great God has provided for us bountifully in the Lord Jesus Christ. Shall we not together feast on him and be satisfied in the extreme? May God give us the grace to embrace all his rich provision by faith, longing for the day of our Lord's appearing and the great marriage supper to come. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we bless your holy name. We call you good, and we have not enough words to say it well enough. How good you are, how good you've been to us in Jesus Christ. Thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the gift of eternal life. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you for the blood of Christ, which cleanses us from all unrighteousness. We bless your holy name. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.